Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Laura Nash. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing great. It's not snowing today in Chicago for once. Shocking. Shocking. Well, actually, it, it, it is snowing again here in Denver, which sucks. Uh, it's been on and off for... Ugh, I don't even want to talk about it. But we are joined this week by a guest, which is very exciting for our show, uh, Patrick Klepek. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, to, I, I hope I can do, give you a proper introduction, but Patrick is the senior reporter for uh, Waypoint, uh, Vice's Waypoint, which is a really fantastic video game culture site. He also hosts the uh, Way... or is one of the hosts of the Way, Waypoint uh, Radio podcast. And uh, we wanted to have him on because he wrote an extremely interesting to us article with the incredibly uh, true title, Most Video Games Are Too Long. It was so on brand (laughs) that we, I I literally have uh, for our show postcards that we handed out the first year we got started as a show that have the words, Most Video Games Are Too Long (laughs) on there, like on our postcards. So when I saw that, I was like, I want to talk to Patrick about this. So, uh, Patrick, thank you so much, and, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I can report from the suburbs of Chicago that it is also not snowing, which is good. So we wanted to have you on, like I said, because you'd recently written an article for Waypoint. It was a really short article. seemed like the kind of thing that you... Uh, tossed together at the last second because you had to put something together and like, ah, I don't know, like, I'll just write this piece and I'll put it up there and see how it does. Like, if that if that's what you were thinking, then... You're, let's just say you're close. I believe you said 20 minutes at some point on Twitter. I was like, yeah, ah, I s- deadline. Mm, I, Gotta get the content yeah. up. I, I spend uh, a lot more time on pieces that I uh, hope to get reactions to, and I don't. And then I spend 20 minutes on a piece, and you just you fall on a good headline, and then well, just thousands of people want to read it. Yeah, the internet is a, is a fickle thing. A very strange thing. Um, so the, the article was, most video games are too long, and... Uh, that obviously hits really close to this show's heart. Our whole thing is talking about short video games. This is a, a drum that we've been beating for about four years now. Um, and it's just, there's a different response to video game length just sort of as a as an idea than there used to be. Obviously, you wrote this while you were playing the game that we reviewed last week, Minute. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, what prompted this article specifically. Tell me a little bit about where this came from. Well, it, I played uh, Minute sort of as a uh, palate cleanser from the game I just reviewed for Waypoint, God of War, which uh, is not a short game by any stretch. If you uh, just do the the main storyline in, in God of War, it's uh, at least 20 hours. And if you're doing all the side stuff, you add another 10 to 15. If you're a completionist, you're looking at 50 to 60. And so that is on the complete <laughs> opposite end of, of Minute. And uh, I had reviewed that, which means I was just spending a lot of time with that game and, and thinking about length, and, and even that's a game that uh, has some pacing issues in the back half, but doesn't feel overstuffed narratively. It feels like a game that, uh, like you, uh, for the most part, uses its length appropriately. Um, and so when I was thinking about that relative to Minute, and then thinking about those games kind of in uh, parallel and in contrast to one another, and then all of that in the context of a you know God of War game that is about fatherhood and toxic masculinity and um, my own like experiences being a father which hopefully do not involve <laughs> toxic masculinity you can ask, <laughs> ask my daughter later I guess to get to get the evidence um, but uh, I was kind of uh, mixing all those things together and it's it's certainly been uh, 
posited before that, uh, you know, the video games are too long. And so I wanted to come at the angle that was, uh, even though I was starting to think about it because uh, I'm a father and my free time is limited, um, that was less of what I was getting at. More of it was that uh, I think video, a lot of video game fans use uh, length of time uh, to play a game as a, as a value metric. And as in a response, uh, game developers uh, tend to uh, try and make longer games because that's something that video game players value. Talk about it, any review will mention how long a game it takes to play. It's as, as opposed to you know movie review where it's just kind of a thing on the side like release date, movie uh, length. Um, it's just a bullet point. It's a piece of data. Um, it's actually like a, a value proposition with with video games. Um, and so yeah, that's kind of where that came from. Was trying to sort of wrestle with that idea and like what does that say about video game fans? What does that say about Critics and reviewers who uh, have, have it's become just sort of indoctrinated. That's something you need to talk about uh, because people are going to ask you about it if you don't talk about it. Um, and sort of where all that stuff uh, falls, especially in uh, the sort of the idea that um, if you work on a game for a number of years, I have lots of friends that are game developers. I've interviewed countless game developers, and uh, things become very precious as stuff goes along. If you were to work on something for three years, even if it would be better for the story, the experience for that thing you've worked on for three years to disappear, like, that's a lot easier for me to say uh, who experiences the thing at the end and then can uh, more easily identify, wow, that, like, two-hour stretch was bad for pacing. Rip out those hundreds of hours that animators and designers and programmers worked on. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I was kind of jumbling all those things together. Um, And then actually tried to temper what I was saying because it it, it felt like it would have been more hyperbolic to say, uh, video games are too long. Like that, that actually might be like that might actually be true. But I think it's more that most video games are too long because most video games aren't uh, are, are either va- using time as an uh, I think as a invalid form of, of value, and then also uh, you know finding a way to kill your darlings is is a difficult proposition for probably any creator. Yeah, it's it's interesting take because I've been reading a lot about prestige TV having similar problems where longer episodes are seen as fancier. You know, it's a right. premiere that's 70 minutes long. It's got to be a more important, more dramatic, more interesting piece um, where it's not true for movies, but it is for individual episodes. And it's it's funny because in games, I'm not sure if we have a prestige attachment to a longer game versus a short game because some short games are seen as so experimental and philosophical and different, but it is seen as kind of a, am I wasting my money value? Right. Yeah. And, and I, 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 uh, it's not something I went to in, into, to this particular piece, but like the value judgment, the financial aspect of this, like I 100% get as a teenager okay. that, uh, had, you know, precious little money to spend on games. Like part of the reason I was attracted to JRPGs, um, was that I could, you know, spend, you know, in Final Fantasy VII, I maxed out the clock to nine 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 nine. That both says something about my social life, and then also like the fact that like Final Fantasy VII could fill that much time. Like I was grinding to get like Knights of the Round Table and doing all the side stuff and trying to fight Ruby and Emerald and blah blah blah. And like that, I that was I, I enjoyed the fact that there was always something more to do, and I understand the attraction to. Uh, worlds that you like spending time in and you'd like to do more in them, even if you know in your heart of hearts that like this isn't really a satisfying thing to do in the world, you just want to do more things in that world. But I think all these things kind of push and pull at each other in a way that uh, video games largely, um, like as a medium, could like use an editing tool 
because um, uh, I, I think the game, I think the games, the experiences, the stories would be would be better for it. Even if that's like telling someone we're going to take an hour away from this thing you paid sixty dollars for, it's like, well, that's not really what they're doing. They're trying to tell a you know, a better story or, you know, take out something that was tedious or repetitive. You know, I mean, if you go read how films are made, like when they stitch together the dailies and like put together a rough cut, I think like Black Panther was four and a half hours. Now, okay, would I like to see the four and a half hour cut as sort of like a, like as a fan who's like interested, but I'm also glad that like there was someone there to make the tough choices. I'm like, well, this is actually what the story needs in order for it to be told. Um, And and there just seems to be a little bit less of that in video games. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that is that I I tend to think about video game length mostly from the player side and my perspective on it I mean yes I certainly totally understand the argument of like I want a nice long juicy game because I want I'm going to spend $60 on this I want to spend you know half my life playing it I get that and I do understand that sort of value proposition but I, I also I mean part of this is because I've grown up gotten a job I you know all the stuff that means that I have le- more money, less time. And so my <laughs> right. my uh, my value proposition has totally flipped. And but I, I you know certainly remember you know putting hundreds of hours into uh, Fantasy Star Four that I got for eighteen dollars at a blockbuster used. And it's like that was a great value proposition for Kid Reagan. Um, but it's interesting to talk about that stuff from the production side too. Like I, I, I think about this stuff mostly from like, okay, how do I value my time and how do I choose, you know, when I make choices about games, am I choosing to play long games or short games? How do I make those choices? But it's interesting to talk, to think about it from the, the producing side as well, thinking about it in terms of editing and not, maybe you want to cut that scene that, that really could be cut, but. But Joe worked on that so hard. That's that's an interesting kind of side of it. I, I do user experience design for a living, and no one's ever gotten promoted for cutting a feature. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard sell because you, you have to tell people that you wasted money. And yeah. it'll make it better, but it's just a much more political thing. Even if you're at a small studio, it's a personal thing. At a large mm-hmm. studio, it's much more about a political, um, you know, someone's job is going to be on the line because you wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars on something that was a failure. <laughs> Even if it tests poorly, it's just people hate pulling features. So yeah, yeah no, that, make, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And there, there was this piece I wrote for Kotaku years back. That was the first piece I wrote for the site that was uh, uh, headlined something about like I wish Dragon Age Inquisition like had more respect for my time. Hmm. And I can't speak to that game's uh, production or or uh, how it was made, but uh, you got the sense playing it that uh, they built all these uh, big, uh, beautiful worlds for you to explore and then just didn't have either the resources or didn't, whatever the case, what they filled the world with outside of the main story stuff was just fairly tedious and boring and uninteresting and did not justify the beautiful world and art that had surrounded it. And I kept thinking like, oh, it's Bioware. Like if they're going to put something into it, like it's go- like it's going to be because like there's a good story to be told. There's going to be something interesting to be found. Even if the side quest starts not particularly well, like maybe it's going to go somewhere or hit me from a different angle. And I just found over and over in Inquisition that was not the case. And it seemed very much that they built these big spaces and then felt like, well, that's because what players want. They want open worlds. And it's like, okay. I mean, maybe players say they want open worlds, but if you're not there to justify the open world part of it, well, then maybe it should have been a third of the space, so it could have been denser and more compact, and players actually knew what they were 
what they should be spending their time on. Like, I think The Witcher 3, which is still like, an extraordinarily long game, and, and the main storyline probably could have been shaved by um, seven or eight hours, but, like, the world... One of the things that The Witcher 3 does that Dragon Age Inquisition didn't do very well was that it very clearly delineates um, in the map between, like, what's just, like, the grindy side stuff that, like, you don't actually need to spend your time with, but maybe is worth doing early in the game to, like, get your stats up and, and stuff like that. But if you're just trying to do, like, the meaningful side quests, like, we're going to we're gonna gatepost that for you. We're going to let you know this is worth your time. And I found more often than not that in The Witcher 3, I was rewarded for tracking that stuff down. And I'm not sure enough games... Uh, give that enough consideration where even if you're going to put in glut and filler because you need to put enough stuff in this world to justify its size it's like let find some way to communicate to players like the hierarchy of like what their interests should be in that rather than having to find out for themselves 10 hours later Mm -hmm. like oh actually like i didn't need to spend any time with this this is just here to fill the gaps in the world so you mentioned that you wrote an article sort of like this same concept essentially almost 10 years ago or something for well i don't know how long ago that was for Kotaku. you've been writing 10 years ago it was probably three but who's counting right that that game came out a while ago and this is not a new conversation in video Mm -hmm. games this you know this is totally uncontroversial totally basic thing to talk about about any other like film you know you're not you're no one's gonna flame a critic for saying that a film was too long but we have a kind of a different relationship with length when it comes to the press talking about this concept, you get kind of weird reactions. And I see it from my side, but I, I'm kind of wondering, like, is this a conversation that has moved forward in any way? Is this something that you feel like has changed over time in your career in the gaming press? Or are we just still having the same conversation again and again? Well, I, I think uh, in some ways it has changed. I think you're seeing a lot. Uh, it used to be the case that the vast majority of game critics were... Uh, like in their twenties, um, like weren't parents, um, uh, and I think we're seeing a lot more folks stick around in games writing and games criticism, um, both because there are more voices, right? So it's not even just like established sort of critics uh, and journalists like myself that have been in sort of like salaried, like job traditional job type roles. I think you're seeing a lot of folks that you know through the democratization of of speech through the internet, where like they can run a blog and they can like post on Reddit, and like there are different ways for. Uh, critique to kind of uh, make its way through. So I think we're getting a wider variety of voices, which means like a wider variety of like where people are at in their lives, what their responsibilities are. Um, so, you know, I can only speak to like my own experience. And like part of that is like as as a father and, and with limited free time, like you, um, you try to pick your bat. Like I don't watch nearly as much garbage TV as I used to. And I love garbage TV. Mm-hmm. Like it's now just I watch – I just watch garbage horror movies. Like, that's the one thing I can't give up because my, my wife and I sort of, like, met over that stuff. And, like, yeah. that's, like, our thing. But, like, you know, like, yo, Iron Fist seems bad. I'm just not going to watch it. <laughs> but, like, five years ago, I'm like, who cares if Iron Fist is bad? I got uh, 12 beers here on a Saturday afternoon to kill. And, like, yeah. we'll, we'll go through it. And so there is that uh, part of it. Um, and I think the, the thing that players do have a point about, um, and something I, I wrestle with, and every critic wrestles with this, um, is that you you never, it's very difficult to have the same experience playing a game uh, as a critic than the player is going to have. Um, you are playing it in a very compressed time period. With God of War, uh, 
had I not had PAX East sort of intercede, I actually would have had like almost a full two weeks to, you know, work through 25, 30 hours, which is faster than I would still normally play a game like that, but is like f still fairly reasonable for someone that was like making gaming their primary hobby, playing a couple hours each night. That's not totally out of their own possibility to make it through that in two weeks uh, and finish that game. Um, that's just not the case for a lot of a lot of games, though. A lot of games are you're getting code for a, a 12, 15-hour game, 48 hours, 12, you know, a day before release, maybe a couple of days, a weekend before, and the embargo is on Monday morning, which means you start playing it on Friday and then have to somehow come up with thoughts by Sunday night, and it has to be edited, laid out, blah, blah, blah. Um, and all the time, you're trying to put into consideration that your experience is different than the vast majority of the audience who is going to engage with it. And uh, for me, I've always just tried to be, or at least what I've learned over the years, is rather than uh, I do as much as I can to have whatever could be considered a, a sort of a normative experience, but for whatever falls outside of that, just speak to how it wasn't. Like, I'd rather just be honest with the audience and they know where I'm coming from, how I played the game, and if they want to take that into consideration for how they interpret my own reaction or own critique, then I think that's that's a fair game. Um, because I, th I think it's impossible to say it doesn't have an influence, but it's also impossible to say what that influence is. Because I think it's both true that games are, uh, generally speaking, too long, and it's also true that the manner in which a lot of critics are forced to play games in order to do the rat race of like publishing a game so it can have the, the highest sort of... like traffic potential does mean they play it in a way that could exasperate uh, the, 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 the tediousness, tediousness of a game if you if you weren't playing it in such a compressed manner. So I think it's it's true, but also it's a difficult uh, problem to grab with because it's we don't live in an age when you uh, when magazines used to be around, uh, they would get the games, uh, you know, a full like two months in advance and that's a long time to, to play a game and to work your way through it and so there there was less of an issue with that because um you're getting it further in advance and also games were just finished earlier like the way games are made now you know games are made right up until just before they ship and then even after they ship they're working on a day one patch to get that stuff finished in the two weeks in between like it being sent to production and it arrives on shelves so it's just the nature of all, of all that stuff has changed and it makes it complicated so i guess you know long story short i just try and be honest with folks and speak to my own experience and then if that if they think oh i think that reaction he had is because of how he played it or because he's a dad and i'm not a dad so that's not going to bother me you know that's a uh, you know more power to you when you're looking for reviews for Waypoint, are you kind of curating palette cleanser games like Minute in the mix um, to try to keep you guys from the reviewer burnout? Or is it just a happy accident when something short like Minute comes in the mix and gives you a, a chance to review something different? It's like a mixture of both. You know, we're relatively new to doing reviews. It's something that Austin and I, when we first started Waypoint, we said, ha ha, we're not doing reviews. Um, <laughs> and then what we found was that uh, what we were largely doing was like maybe, you know, a couple days after a game or a week later, we were writing like these long essays that were more or less reviews, but like we were all, we were calling them essays or critiques or whatever. Um, and there was just something about the word review that just has a certain authority and weight and like very honestly, like traffic wise, like there was stamping a review on it just means something different in terms of how people uh, pay attention to it. And so we thought, like, well, what if we rethought that? What if instead of it was the critical essay a week later, what if it was a review and we just treat our reviews as the, it's not any different? Maybe we're 
we speak a little more generally or, or, or wider scope about a game and explain a little bit more of the mechanics and the basics to like get people up to speed if they're maybe reading uh, Waypoint for the first time or encountering the game for the first time um, and doing less uh, sort of assumption of knowledge uh, about someone coming into a piece. But um, let's try and weave like those critiques into an actual review because it's that got it to the the heart of one of the things that Austin and I talked about as we were putting together the site was trying to make a publication that reflected what we wanted to do more of every day rather than an outlier at publications uh, that we had both worked at uh, previously. And so uh, it's like if we want to, rather than writing a review and then an essay that talks about the politics of a game, like, like what if we... That's just the thing. And so, you know, you read, you know, Austin's review of Far Cry 5, like very much weaves in his analysis of the game's uh, political commentary or lack thereof. Um, you know, and I, you know, my piece talks about like, you know, the, the God of War is like, uh, it, you know, history with, with violence and uh, and things like that. And, you know, it's uh, the, the sort of datification of games and like putting that all in there as opposed to its own uh, separate piece. And so uh, and it's also just a thing where we sort of let people review what they want like we're we're such a small staff at waypoint that we can't really cover everything so we in order to ensure that there is as little staff burnout as as possible it's really trying to encourage people to find a balance between we should cover this because it's a big thing and uh people are probably interested in what we have to say and then also like well if you're tired of those games and you don't want to put in the hours in it and what you're going to have to say about it won't end up being interesting well then maybe that's just not the best use uh, of our time um so yeah it's kind of a balance between all those things like minute is danielle loves tiny weird indie games and so like she's going to <laughs> review a lot of tiny weird indie games and and that's just fine well she, she has been a great resource for for this show we uh we i bet yeah work. i bet <laughs> um does does coverage of shorter games do okay on your site like just in terms of traffic the obviously there's this marketing and just cultural moment behind big triple a game releases that has got to make those reviews you know probably the bread and butter of a site like waypoint but um you have a you have this different sort of way of having a take on games that's not just about reviewing them as commercial products you know they're review you're talking about them as cultural things when you do these reviews of smaller games, do you, do you have an audience for that? I, I mean, if if your if your question is like, could Waypoint exist if we only covered like those indie games? Like the the question, the, like the answer is to that is no. Like, um, um, that stuff doesn't. Occasionally, a thing hits in a way that is surprising, um, but it's not something that can be relied on because, uh, like frankly, like the smaller audience for that, like only a fraction of the audience is interested in even a big game is going to click on your piece about it. And then if you are to shave the potential audience down to a smaller game to, you know, a fraction of that, you know, the same, you know, uh, logic applies that only a fraction of those people are going to click on your piece uh, about that. And so, you know, I think, you know, we, 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 uh, part of Waypoint is championing, you know, smaller, independent, marginalized, strange, odd things. And so it is always going to be core to our mission that, that is the kind of things that are showing up on our front page regularly that we're putting resources into covering those, reviewing those, treating them as though they are the same, like cultural objects on the same level as a God of War. We don't think of them as like bigger or smaller. We just think of them both as a thing that we're interested in. Let's talk about how we react to it. Um, because if we were to lose that entirely, it's, you know, it would leave, it would lose part of the core DNA of like what 
uh, Waypoint is, which was like both highlighting marginalized voices in game creation and in game critique and game uh, analysis. Like that is that is really woven into the whole all, what Austin wanted to do and what I signed on to try and help him accomplish was was to do that at Waypoint. And so, yeah, like the small stuff doesn't do particularly good uh, traffic. That's not uh, exclusive, but that is um, that is. Uh, tends to be uh, the thing. But, um, you know, I, the other, on the flip side of that is figuring out, I, I think we tended to shy away in the first year from actually covering a lot of the big AAA stuff because our thought was that's being done just, maybe not just fine, but plenty by uh, everyone else and maybe our focus should be elsewhere. And then what we kind of started, our, our thinking sort of evolved and, you know, certain like sort of like business considerations go hand in hand, but we also were like... Did it make sense to abandon those games from, like, our analysis, our critique, uh, just because uh, we find them less maybe interesting, like, a foundationally? And it's like, no, like, there, there's a reason that, like, so many people buy these games, are interested in these games. Like, what if we try to sort of set our egos aside a little bit? And, like, what if we were to take the same thoughts and feelings about examining them as cultural objects, as political objects, um... And apply that lens to, like, big games like God of War, Far Cry 5, Detroit Become Human, stuff like that. And I, we have found that to be uh, not only uh, useful in terms of, like, running a successful website, but also, like, people want to know how to feel about those games. Like, one of the values of a critic um, that I learned over the years, um, it's not something I really thought about when I got started, was getting trying to find a way to get people the words to explain how they feel about something. I think a lot of people will... Uh, this is definitely true for me when I watch like TV and movie where I don't have a lot of the language. Like that's not what I'm I'm versed in in criticism. And I love reading like really thoughtful essays because I'll read something and go, right, that is exactly how I felt. But I had no way of exp- I fumbled that out. You know, like I had no way of really expressing it. And someone else does it beautifully, and then I'm able to like point like, hey, this is why I felt this way about this thing. And we find it useful to to do that in games criticism. And I found it exceedingly useful. To increasingly useful to start doing that in like the larger game space, like God of War and and, and Far Cry Five, and I think that's something we're hoping to continue um, going forward because the response has been really positive for folks that like they're really interested in, in politics and stuff like that, but they're also like interested in these big ass video games that <laughs> yeah. um, that I think have largely been treated like they have nothing to say or don't even have a political context and. That's both wrong, and it's largely thought to be that way because they haven't been treated as such. And so, you know, however we can chip away at that block, uh, I think we we find to be useful. While you're trying to dig into both a similar depth, um, do you look for different things in shorter games versus longer ones or AAA versus indie when you're deciding what to cover? I mean, I think it's often... uh, the same as what I said before about like what, what kind of what speaks to us, right? Like it's it's uh, that can be like in a minute that's like mechanically, right? Like that is like the the gimmick of the game, the framework of the game is is really fascinating. Where you're you know you're playing through a session every sixty seconds. Like uh, I think you'll often find a lot of the games that we're covering, especially in that space, tend to have like a real a sort of emotional depth. Like often dealing with. Um, uh, sort of like gender and sex, so like specifically, like there's a lot of stuff that we that, uh, that we publish on Waypoint, both written by our staff and, and stuff that's done uh, externally by our great list of uh, contributors. Like that, yeah, specifically deals with things like sex and gender and identity because you just don't see a lot of that in other publications. And like the the notion that uh, 
uh, games aren't grappling with that or trying to grapple with it is is false. And but you do see that a lot more explicitly in indie games. So I think you end up seeing a lot of that stuff. Uh, filter into Waypoint's coverage where it's like, we want to talk about these topics and uh, while it's starting to happen a little bit more in in the larger games, like where you're seeing it happen much more rapidly, much more interestingly often is in the in the smaller games. So it's like as we uh, as we look for different ways to expand on those those issues, and uh, indie sort of the indie space ends up in these often shorter games um, end up providing like a really good outlet for for those discussions. And because our listeners will prob- are always looking for uh, you know what are good short games to play, and I guess also because you know we're always looking for what to cover on the next episode. Uh, do you have any particular short games that you've played, maybe over the last few years, that you think maybe didn't get enough attention or that you really enjoyed? Uh, I feel like you're, any one that I put out there, I feel like you're probably going to have already covered on this possible on this podcast. So. It's fine. We always like plus ones. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there were two this year that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, the shortest of the short was uh, this this iOS uh, romance game called Florence um, mm. uh, that uh, came out, I think, in January or February. It's just a really interesting, uh, more graphic novel than, like, mechanically driven game that tells just a, like, a pretty ordinary story of, like, a relationship uh, that's it's not about saving the world. It's not even about, like... A relationship like crashing and burning. It's more just like a very uh, sympathetic, interesting, relatable story about like two adults and like stuff that happens as you like figure out romance. And um, it's on iOS and Android mm-hmm. at the moment, and it's only a couple of bucks. And it takes like I don't know half an hour to play, like the equivalent of like a you know twenty-two minute um, uh, episode of a TV show. And then the other one from earlier this year, uh, Goragoa, Goa, uh, which is a puzzle game that was on Switch and. PC, and I think it's coming to PS4 pretty soon. I know they're porting it to some of the consoles right now, but just a really uh, wonderful uh, puzzle game um, whose story I tried to follow, but I, I, I was mostly just engulfed in the puzzles. Um, but it's a really, really well made and only a couple of hours long. And uh, it's actually a game I would recommend if you do some uh, the GDC talk that the designer did, he worked on this game for, I think, the better part of seven or eight years. Mm. Um, and very specifically, he spoke about like a lot of the development of that game was doing the very thing that I was advocating for and talking about, which is like killing your darlings and removing things from the game because it made the game better. Um, and he does a whole talk at GDC, which I think just went up on YouTube, uh, which he speaks to like what it was like and how to find the things to cut. Um, I think he said he like cut like two or three games worth of like finished content wow. because it didn't serve the game he was trying to make, and that's that's like a very I imagine a very brave thing to do given uh, how much time he must have spent building all that stuff out. Yeah, that was a magnificently put together game, and you're right, really exquisitely edited. So you. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to go check out that GDC talk if I can find it. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, this is a relatively new segment to our show, but as we have been doing for the last few episodes, uh, we are going to close it out with uh, non-short game chatter. Uh, what is making you happy this week? Uh, uh, so name for this segment is pending. Listeners, if you have a suggestion on what we should be calling it, rather than simply stealing the name from uh, from the uh, Slate uh, Gabfest was it the show that we stole it from? And Pop culture happy hour. We're stealing it from everybody, basically. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> and also, of course, from the excellent Waypoint Radio, uh, where they have come up with a cute name for theirs, which is just Waypoints. Laura, do you have anything that's been making you happy this week? 
I've had a bad fever this week and have been delaying watching Westworld because I'm afraid I won't be able to follow it. Um, but I was uh, able to catch up on a show called Killing Eve, which is on BBC America. There's only three episodes out right now. It's got Sandra Oh, and it's this cat and mouse uh, assassin game where there's a female MI5 detective and uh, a female assassin, and they're kind of trying to track down, you know, one is killing people, the other one's very obsessed with female assassins. But um, uh, it's weirdly funny the first episode when you meet this person everybody is super hungover and there's episodes where you're trying to eat a croissant during a meeting stuff like that doesn't normally get into the high class spy procedurals um these people are human and they're really weird um and i think it's you know i'd love to know what it's like when i'm not on dayquil but so far i've seen two episodes and they've both been top notch everybody's a good actor and it's um a much more interesting version of a show that I thought I had seen before. Awesome. I can't wait to check that out. Uh, the thing that's been making me happiest this week is uh, that I finally bought and installed a Lutron Caseta switch in my living room, which is the one of the home automation, you know, Alexa enabled uh, ah, smart switches. Okay. All right. And so I've started going down that incredible, I feel extremely old and I don't know. Uh, I don't know. You, you've, uh, Patrick, you've become a dad. Has, has the home automation thing gotten? Uh, in- I've, st- I've start. I started, I, uh, my um, uh, lovely in-laws when they asked like, they, you know, since we've had our daughter, like, we basically, like, hey, if people want to buy, stop buying us gifts, like, we're good, like, just buy stuff for our daughter and spend money on her. Um, but my in-laws were uh, very insistent, like, what is something that you'd like to buy yourself, but, like, you just won't, like, you just, like, you cannot justify it. And I was like, wow, man, I really want to start going down the path of, like, replacing the lights in the house mm-hmm. over, like, the next, like, couple of years and let's like when things are on sale buy you know but it's like the starter kit is like the most expensive mm-hmm. part of that yeah. and it's not like ridiculous expensive but it's like 150 bucks like it's enough that like i'm not sitting on amazon going like uh impulse buy 150 dollars like, yeah that's just not it um and for christmas they got me like the the starter uh, like a phillips hue pack mm. like not the colored ones i haven't gone down that rabbit hole just the regular white ones but i was able to replace like all the ones in the kitchen and the ones in our living room which is like where our daughter is and where we go in at night to like grab things and, like so it's like the, the most useful part of the house to have those lights and it is awesome to like not have to touch those switches that if it's cloudy out that day and i just need all the lights in the immediate area just to like pop up like that yeah i'm with you it's really good and like we got to we put in a Google Home in our kitchen mm-hmm. so that I can just like yell at that. Of course, now all my daughter says is, okay, Google. Go, go, go. Because she likes, because you can ask it like uh, animal noises. And so it's like, what does the monkey sound like? And then she laughs at the monkey sound, but then just sits there going, eh, go, go, eh, go, go. And she can't say it yet, which is good, but I'm sure in the next six months that'll change. Wow. There's yeah. There's a writer, um, Catherine Van Arendonk, who thinks um, her baby has imprinted on the Alexa because one day it was down and the lights weren't word blue it was red and the baby mm. was so upset and kept like hitting it and she's like oh no my baby thinks alexa's alive and now it's dead so, oh god yeah it yeah. really upset the baby when alexa was down so now she's so um kids in tech are um fierce loyalty bonds who knew mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well that's basically where i'm at though with the with the lutron caseta wall switch i managed to install it without electrocuting myself to death and uh, so I, I heartily endorse the switch. It's it's very it's easy if it's uh, 
the, having them built into the switch rather than into the bulb is nice because mm. then you still have the option to go hit a switch on the wall and it's it, it do, you don't get that situation where you've got maybe like the bulb is turned off but the switch is turned on things get kind of confusing that way yeah it's a, yeah it's a little weird on ours where like sometimes they'll like lose connection over bluetooth and then like one light goes out but then if you go to turn the switch off you're turning like all the light yeah it's finicky but uh i can yell at a device and it turns my lights on and off and (laughs) that's pretty all right it's something i want i just happen to live in a one-bedroom rented apartment and the switch is always within four steps of me so i really have no need for it yet neither do i and yet here i am yes (laughs) well patrick do you have anything that's been making you happy this week outside of games or short games uh i am i am happy that i have not been spoiled on infinity war yet uh Mm. uh, a movie i'm tremendously excited for um and i i guess like on top of that i'm i'm surprised a little i'm happy that i don't know what's going to happen when i go see that movie like tomorrow night whatever i don't know when this is going up but i'm recording this you know uh, two nights before it comes out um and you know my wife and i have a you know, we're all set up. We're going to go see the movie. We're seeing a movie theater that serves alcohol. So we nice. have some beers while we're watching it. And um, I'm just, I've been tremendously invested in that whole world. I've gotten into comics, like, largely because of the MCU. And I, it's, like, exciting to go into it. Then we're like, like, are they going to kill these characters? Like, which is, like, a really funny existential thing to think about. Because, like, the only reason that's a thing is because they don't ever kill those characters. <laughs> like, like, it's a, it's a, an indictment of fiction and, like, like film in general <laughs> that people are like, I wonder if they would kill someone when, like, that's just like a thing fiction should do if that's the story it should tell. But it's exciting to think like there's so much writing on this and I largely don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so I, I'm just excited that I don't know and uh, maybe it'll be disappointment on the other side. But there are a few things in life, especially as someone that uh, writes and like sees things early for a living, like that I'm able to go in with like a sense of mystery and surprise. And so uh, however it pans out, um, I'm just I'm excited about not knowing uh, and, and that, like, actually itself makes me happy. I, I'm I'm hoping I'm still in that same place, you know, two weeks from now when I finally make it down to a movie theater or get, drag my wife down to a movie theater. I'm, See, I'm on Twitter too much, so, like, because it's part of my job. And so I, I just, like, when it becomes, oh, yeah. like, these big cultural moments it, like this, like, it's Star Wars. And once the embargo's or, lifted, it's just terrifying. Right. It's it's horrifying being on. And, and on top of that, uh, uh, there is a history of folks, like, I've already turned all my notifications from on Twitter from people. I normally like just let the Twitter stream flow like a gross river, like a <laughs> swamp. Um, but then I need to turn off the notifications or anything other than people I follow because like folks that don't like my work and folks from like Gamergate and stuff like that will like seek out and try and spoil things for me mm. just to like mess with me, which is, which happened with me with The Force Awakens. Oh, like, that sucks. Like, <laughs> for ten minutes before I walked in to see the movie, like which. You know, not great. Um, so so far, knock on wood, I'm doing I'm doing all right. So we'll right. see. Well, best of luck. I hope that holds out. Thank you. I just jinxed myself. I shouldn't have said any of this out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It won't go up until afterwards. So hopefully, no one will know. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really really fun chat- chatting with you. I uh, just for our listeners, if any of you haven't already been, first of all. Check out Waypoint, waypoint waypoint.vice.com. It's a fantastic website. But in particular, check out their podcast, uh, Waypoint Radio, which has been... 
you guys somehow managed to become my very favorite gaming podcast over a really, really short amount of time. Like, it thank you. Really been doing amazing work there. Great discussions. Um, so, uh, for folks who like this show, you'll probably like that one as well. If you aren't already listening to Waypoint Radio, go check it out. Um, so, thank you for for coming on the show. Um, we'll do a little bit of admin here at the end. Uh, I've been Reagan Kelly. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R A Y G A N K. You can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game, and we love to hear from you there. You can also go to www.theshortgame.net where we've got a contact form. You can let us know what you're thinking. If you have short games that you think we ought to be checking out or playing, let us know there. Uh, Laura, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And Patrick, where, of course, can people find you and all of your work? And they can find me at Patrick Klopik. And thank you so much for uh, joining us on The Short Game. 